Hello, and uh, welcome to the Smith Flicks Experience. I'm your host, Eric Smith, as we continue this exciting journey through the world of James Bond. So here we are. We're at the end of the 60s. It's 1969, and we're going to take a look at On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So this was the uh, ongoing court debate and everything that uh, was going on with Kevin McClory and uh, Ian Fleming and everything. So after years of having to postpone the making of this film, uh, it was going to be after Goldfinger, and then it was pushed back, and it was going to be after Thunderball, and it got pushed back uh, for various reasons. That reason, why they did with You Only Live Twice, is because um, the, uh, Switzerland was experiencing unusually warm climate. So there was... Uh, lack of snowfall and they had to postpone it again so finally they were able to uh, cubby broccoli and harry Salzman were finally able to make honor her majesty's secret service uh, as the sixth film now lewis gilbert was originally offered to direct again but he declined uh, no real reason is given as to why that's when the producers came to peter hunt uh, who graciously accepted peter hunt uh, as you recall from the last episode had uh, requested, you know, asked if he could direct You Only Live Twice, uh, but they declined it because they wanted someone with a little bit more experience, but they gave him second unit directorial duties. So he earned that and proved his mettle there. So when they came to him and offered him his chance to direct this one, he graciously accepted um, because they promised him. They said, you know, if you, you know, we'll have you direct a later one, let's see how you do with second unit stuff. So they, they delivered on their promise, offering him a chance to direct this film. Uh, there he became good friends with future Bond director John Glenn. Uh, Hunt also edited other Gilbert films such as Sink the Bismarck. He also previously worked with Broccoli and Saltzman in 1963 Bob Hope comedy Call Me Buona, again the poster that was featured in From Russia with Love, which is why they picked him to uh, edit the Bond films. He also wound up working with Saltzman on the 1965 spy thriller The Ipcris File. And oh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, it would be Hunt's only directorial effort on a Bond film, uh, and the last he did as editor, although he would work with future Bond Roger Moore on the 1976 adventure film Shout at the Devil, which co-starred Lee Marvin, as well as direct several episodes of Moore's show The Pretenders, in which he co-starred with Tony Curtis. So after You Only Live Twice, the producers were met with a difficult decision. Who would play James Bond? Sean Connery announced his retirement from the role during the filming of He Only Lived Twice, so Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman began the search for the next James Bond. Overall, over 400 actors were considered for the role. Uh, among the top candidates were English actor John Richardson, best notable for the 1960 horror film Black Sunday, uh, the 1965 adventure film She, which starred Bond alum Ursula Andress, and the 1966 fantasy adventure One Million Years B.C., which uh, starred Ra Raquel Welch. Uh, Scottish actor Anthony Rogers was also considered. He's best known for playing Sir Dinadan in the 1967 musical Camelot. And of course, George Lazenby. Broccoli also met with famed actor Terrence Stamp, but he declined. 
Rockley wanted Oliver Reed as well as he was becoming a rising star, but his public image was all too distinct. It's kind of all over the tabloids. Now, Timothy Dalton, who would later become Bond in the late 80s, was asked to audition after the producers saw him in The Lion in Winter, but was later considered too young as he was only 25 at the time. Uh, even f he felt he was too young uh, an actor to succeed Connery. Dalton said that he felt Bond should be between 35 and 40, and that he felt he wouldn't fit right in the role. In the end, they chose Lazenby after seeing him in a Fry's chocolate cream advertisement. Uh, Lazenby had no prior acting experience and was a professional male model from Australia at the time. And the, but this usually poses a concern, but many of the Bond women, if we recall, a lot of the Bond women uh, in previous films were only professional models and not actresses, and they did pretty great jobs. So a lot of people were concerned that, well, this guy's not really an actor, he's just a model. Now, Timothy Dalton, who would later become Bond in the late 80s, was asked to audition after the producers saw him in The Lion in Winter, but was later considered too young as he was only 25 at the time. Uh, even f he felt he was too young uh, an actor to succeed Connery. Uh, Dalton said that he felt Bond should be between 35 and 40, and that he felt he wouldn't fit right in the role. In the end, they chose Lazenby after seeing him in a Fry's chocolate cream advertisement. Uh, Lazenby had no prior acting experience and was a professional male model from Australia at the time. And the, but this usually poses a concern, but many of the Bond women, if we recall, a lot of the Bond women uh, in previous films were only professional models and not actresses, and they did pretty great jobs. So a lot of people were concerned that, well, this guy's not really an actor, he's just a model. Well, Lazy B showed up to the meeting dressed as James Bond. He even incorporated several Bond elements, such as wearing a Rolex Submariner wristwatch and a Savile Row suit that was actually ordered by Sean Connery but never picked up. Alright, so let's now let's talk about the plot. The film opens in M's office with Q talking to M about the special equipment they once had now being obsolete before showing him the latest from Q Branch. Radioactive lint which would be placed in an opponent's pockets, thus allowing him to be tracked via the radioactive signature. He says that the anti-personnel and location fix seems fairly obvious. Now, the Q branch has made some truly brilliant designs in the past. This is not one of them. This is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so M changes the subject, seemingly to get, away, get Q to stop talking about his length, and says we need a location fix on 007, and that number 10 is making ugly noises about Operation Bedlam. He asks Moneypenny if she's heard anything from him, and she says no. M states that the PM wants to be informed immediately once 007 is found. We then cut to Bond driving his 1968 Aston Martin DBS. His face is partially obscured, we only see his mouth and jaw, everything's kind of shadowed, as well as occasional shots at the back of his head. Now, I guess we all know it's George Lazenby and not Sean Connery, but they want to kind of add that air of mystery, I suppose, that this is a different Bond, so to speak. He sees a 1969 Mercury Cougar XR7 tailing him, honking their horn. This could be a possible callback to the encounter Bond had, as it had in his DB5 with Tilly Masterson and her Mustang and Goldfinger. We see a beautiful woman driving. He allows her to pass and she races by. He picks up the pace and starts following her, casually lighting a cigarette while he drives. We see in an instance where he has both hands off the wheel. One hand holds the cigarette, the other one's lighting it. Come on, Bond, keep your hands on the wheel. He sees the red cougar parked alongside the road. He quickly puts, pulls up near it and opens a secret compartment in his glove box, which houses a sniper rifle that you put together. This is a callback to the similar one used in From Russia With Love, and he takes out the scope. He looks through it as if he sees the woman walking toward the rough ocean. She slips off her shoes 
and starts heading in as if she's ready to die. Bond jumps out of the car and races down, takes off his jacket, and rushes to her rescue. He pulls her from the crashing waves and lays her down in the sand. Here we see our first full glimpse of George Lazenby as he delivers the classic line, My name is Bond, James Bond. However, the two never get fully introduced as a couple of men approach Bond. One has a gun to his head. The man tells him to get up with his hands behind his head and takes him to a boat on the beach where he tells him to lie down. Bond lies down and grabs a boat hook and flings it at the attacker. He runs up to the guy and punches him and kicks away the gun. They fight in the water as the other man takes the woman. Bond finally manages to knock out the guy and throws him under a boat. The second man attacks Bond and he knocks him out, throwing him into a fishing net. The woman takes Bond's car, and that's the first time we see another person driving Bond's car. And he dri- she drives it up next to hers. She gets out of his car and jumps in hers and takes off. Bond looks at, almost looks at the camera and says, This never happened to the other fellow. The only thing missing here is a wink at the camera. But it's a sly reference to that. Again, this is a different Bond that we're dealing with here. Or the same Bond, but different actor sort of thing. You know, kind of a you know, wink-wink sort of situation. So as Bond runs off with the woman's shoes in his hand, his body becomes silhouetted as it transitions to the opening credits. Once again, these are wonderfully done by Maurice Bender. Just absolutely fantastic. These feature silhouetted women and scenes from previous Bond films, mainly highlighting the Bond women and the villains, and they're imposed over a shape of an hourglass and uh, other items. This also features an instrumental theme composed by John Barry. This is the first time they used an instrumental theme since From Russia With Love, and it is fantastic. I love this theme. I could listen to this one all the day. It's very well paced, it's exciting, it's exhilarating. They use it throughout the film at some key moments, and it works to great effect. Uh, So a huge kudos to John Barry and Maurice Binder for those uh, wonderful opening credits in the song. So, we then see Bond and his DBS approaching a hotel in Portugal. He spots the same Mercury Cougar parked outside. Bond must be a frequent guest at the hotel as he's warmly greeted by the concierge. Bond inquires about the owner of the Red Cougar and he says it belongs to a Contessa, Teresa de Vicenzo. He then shows Bond to his room, stating that fortunately there was a cancellation. Lucky for Bond. We get a wonderful transition from day to night. Very nice editing here. Uh, We see a shot of the hotel's pool going from being full in the daytime, everyone having fun, to this slow transition to night, and we see this big red casino sign reflected on the still waters. Very wonderfully done. Uh, Bond makes his way to the Baccarat table and plays a hand, winning at them all, just as Bond does. Teresa shows up and puts money down. Bond decides to sit out this hand, and she winds up losing. She approaches the casino manager and tells him that she doesn't have the money to pay. Bond speaks up and says that my mind was elsewhere. He, f- he forgot that he and Madame agreed to be partners this evening, he tells uh, the manager, so he pays her debt. He then follows her into the next room, where she wonders why he always insists on saving her. He says it's a habit, referring to her as Teresa. She coolly replies that Teresa was a saint. I'm known as Tracy then tells her to play it safe with Baccarat next time. She then tosses him her room key and tells him to come by later and that she hopes he'll be worth it. Bond has a waiter send champagne and caviar to the room. Later that night, Bond enters the room and looks for her, but the room is empty. He's then attacked out of nowhere by a large man. 
They fight and Bond is a little outmatched but continues to go toe to toe and eventually takes the man out by throwing him into a partition. As he leaves, he sees the champagne and caviar and smears some caviar in a biscuit. And this is a very weird kind of random thing he explains. As he exits, he's like, hmm, Royal Beluga, north of the Caspian. So this is one of the issues that we've, I had with Lazenby's Bond. He comes off as a little bit pompous, you know, when he says lines like this. It's just kind of a little off-putting in a way. So anyway... Bond makes his way back to his own room. He takes off his jacket and gun and goes to admire himself in a mirror. Like, yes. Hand grabs for his gun and Tracy appears out of the shadows wearing only a bathroom. She approaches Bond with the gun and he asks for it. But she says she could just kill him for the thrill. He grabs her arm and wants ask, answers, asking who the man was in her room. She says that he's hurting her and he pushes back. Well, wasn't that the idea for tonight? Slaps her across the face. Again, 60s, you know, uh, Trying to display some male dominance here. Still, abuse is not the answer. Um, you know, he's a lot more aggressive uh, at times here. So he's like, you know, she feels like her arm's going to break from him and everything. So it's not a, not one of the Bond's best moments. He takes the gun from her, tells her to get dressed. She heads out of the terrace and lies down. Uh, Bond follows her and calls her extraordinary. She said she's not interested in his personal opinion. That she's only here as a business transaction. He lays next to her and smells her hand, commenting on her perfume, asking if Le Bleu isn't a bit heady for that. She sarcastically cries, So you know your perfumes. What else do you know? A little about women, is his reply. She refers to herself as a woman he just bought. Bond says she doesn't owe him anything, but that he thinks that she's in trouble. She rebukes that idea, and they eventually kiss. Now outside, we see the man that Bond beat up earlier standing outside the door listening in, but he eventually walks away. Alright, so let's now let's talk about the plot. The film opens in M's office with Q talking to M about the special equipment they once had now being obsolete before showing him the latest from Q Branch. Radioactive lint, which would be placed in an opponent's pockets, thus allowing him to be tracked via the radioactive signature. He says that the anti-personnel and location fix seems fairly obvious. Now, the Q branch has made some truly brilliant designs in the past. This is not one of them. This is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so M changes the subject, seemingly to get away, get Q to stop talking about his lymph, and says we need a location fix on 007, and that number 10 is making ugly noises about Operation Bedlam. He asks Moneypenny if she's heard anything from him, and she says no. M states that the PM wants to be informed immediately once 007 is found. We then cut to Bond driving his 1968 Aston Martin DBS. His face is partially obscured. We only see his mouth and jaw. Everything's kind of shadowed, as well as occasional shots at the back of his head. Now, I guess we all know it's George Lazenby and not Sean Connery, but they want to kind of add that air of mystery, I suppose, that this is a different Bond, so to speak. He sees a 1969 Mercury Cougar XR7 tailing him, honking their horn. This could be a possible callback to the encounter Bond had, as it had in his DB5 with Tilly Masterson and her Mustang and Goldfinger. We see a beautiful woman driving. He allows her to pass and she races by. He picks up the pace and starts following her, casually lighting a cigarette while he drives. We see in an instance where he has both hands off the wheel. One hand holds the cigarette, the other one's lighting it. Come on, Bond, keep your hands on the wheel. 
He sees the red cougar parked alongside the road. He quickly puts, pulls up near it and opens a secret compartment in his glove box, which houses a sniper rifle that you put together. This is a callback to the similar one used in From Russia With Love. And he takes out the scope. He looks through it as if he sees the woman walking toward the rough ocean. She slips off her shoes and starts heading in as if she's ready to die. Bond jumps out of the car and races down, takes off his jacket, and rushes to her rescue. He pulls her from the crashing waves and lays her down in the sand. Here we see our first full glimpse of George Lazenby as he delivers the classic line, My name is Bond, James Bond. However, the two never get fully introduced as a couple of men approach Bond. One has a gun to his head. The man tells him to get up with his hands behind his head and takes him to a boat on the beach where he tells him to lie down. Bond lies down and grabs a boat hook and flings it at the attacker. He runs up to the guy and punches him and kicks away the gun. They fight in the water as the other man takes the woman. Bond finally manages to knock out the guy and throws him under a boat. The second man attacks Bond and he knocks him out, throwing him into a fishing net. The woman takes Bond's car, and that's the first time we see another person driving Bond's car. And he dri she drives it up next to her. She gets out of his car and jumps in hers and takes off. Bond looks at, almost looks at the camera and says, this never happened to the other fellow. The only thing missing here is a wink at the camera. But it's a sly reference to that. Again, this is a different Bond that we're dealing with here. Or the same Bond, but different actor sort of thing. You know, kind of a, you know, wink, wink sort of situation. So as Bond runs off with the woman's shoes in his hand, his body becomes silhouetted as it transitions to the opening credits. Once again, these are wonderfully done by Maurice Bender. Just absolutely fantastic. These feature silhouetted women and scenes from previous Bond films, mainly highlighting the Bond women and the villains, and they're imposed over a shape of an hourglass and uh, other items. This also features an instrumental theme composed by John Barry. This is the first time they used an instrumental theme since From Russia With Love, and it is fantastic. I love this theme. I could listen to this one all the day. It's very well paced, it's exciting, it's exhilarating. They use it throughout the film at some key moments and it works to great effect. Uh, so a huge kudos to John Barry and Maurice Binder for those uh, wonderful opening credits in the song. So we then see Bond and his DBS approaching a hotel in Portugal. He spots the same Mercury Cougar parked outside. Bond must be a frequent guest at the hotel as he's warmly greeted by the concierge. Bond inquires about the owner of the Red Cougar and he says it belongs to a Contessa, Teresa de Vicenzo. He then shows Bond to his room, stating that fortunately there was a cancellation. Lucky for Bond. We get a wonderful transition from day to night. Very nice editing here. Uh, we see a shot of the hotel's pool going from being full in the daytime, everyone having fun, to a, this slow transition to night and we see this big red casino sign reflected on the still waters very wonderfully done uh, Bond makes his way to the Baccarat table and plays a hand winning at them all just as Bond does Teresa shows up and puts money down Bond decides to sit out this hand and she winds up losing she approaches the casino manager and tells him that she doesn't have the money to pay Bond speaks up and says that my mind was elsewhere he, f he forgot that he and Madame agreed to be partners this evening he tells uh, the manager so he pays her debt he then follows her into the next room where she wonders why he always insists on saving her. He says it's a habit, referring to her as Teresa. She coolly replies that Teresa was a saint. I'm known as Tracy. Then tells her to play it safe with Baccarat next time. She then tosses him her room key 
and tells him to come by later and that she hopes he'll be worth it. Bond has a waiter send champagne and caviar to the room. Later that night, Bond enters the room and looks for her, but the room is empty. He's then attacked out of nowhere by a large man. They fight, and Bond is a little outmatched, but continues to go toe-to-toe and eventually takes the man out by throwing him into a partition. As he leaves, he sees the champagne and caviar and smears some caviar in a biscuit. And this is a very weird kind of random thing he explains. As he exits, he's like, hmm, Royal Beluga, north of the Caspian. Uh, this is one of the issues that we've, I had with Lazenby's Bond. He comes off as a little bit pompous, you know, when he says the lines like this. It's just kind of a little off-putting in a way. So, anyway, Bond makes his way back to his own room. He takes off his jacket and gun and goes to admire himself in a mirror. I guess. Hand grabs for his gun and Tracy appears out of the shadows wearing only a bathroom. She approaches Bond with the gun and he asks for it. But she says she could just kill him for the thrill. He grabs her arm and wants answers, asking who the man was in her room. She says that he's hurting her, and he goes back, well, wasn't that the idea for tonight? Slaps her across the face. Again, 60s, you know, uh, trying to display some male dominance here. Still, abuse is not the answer. Um, You know, he's a lot more aggressive uh, at times here. So he's, like, you know, she feels like her arm's going to break from him and everything. So it's not a... one of Bond's best moments. He takes the gun from her, tells her to get dressed. She heads out of the terrace and lies down. Uh, Bond follows her and calls her extraordinary. She said she's not interested in his personal opinion, that she's only here as a business transaction. He lays next to her and smells her hand, commenting on her perfume, asking if Le Bleu isn't a bit heady for that. She sarcastically cries, so you know your perfumes, what else do you know? A little about women, is his reply. She refers to herself as a woman he just bought. Bond says she doesn't owe him anything, but that he thinks that she's in trouble. She rebukes that idea, and they eventually kiss. Now outside, we see the man that Bond beat up earlier standing outside the door listening, but he eventually walks away. The next morning, Bond wakes up and finds himself alone. Uh, He calls the front desk to have breakfast brought up and asks to ring Tracy's room, but they inform her that she just checked out. Bond sees the nightstand ajar and opens it, revealing 20,000 francs. Revealing 20,000 francs. Uh, as Bond checks out, he's encountered by a man who says he's lost something, that they'll give it to him outside. Uh, they're followed by another man and forced into a car where the heavy that Bond found with earlier is What a lovely surprise meeting again so soon, he says to the man who puts the knife next to his stomach. Bond asks where they're going as they're driving, but they won't disclose anything. He tells them to the man that they'll enjoy the trip more if he didn't have the knife on him, but the man just grunts and keeps it there. So they arrive at a construction room that says Draco Construction on the doors. They enter and Bond is led down a hallway and into a room. You can actually hear a janitor whistling at the end of Goldfinger while he sweeps. Uh, Bond gets the jump on the bed knocking them out. Now this is actually one of the lower points of the film because it's so heavily edited here. At times you can't even make out what's going on. Uh, and the reason for this is because with uh, Sean Connery uh, the stunt coordinators and stuntmen were used to him staging his own fights George Lazenby not being a professional actor he's never done that sort of thing before so they had to stop and start stop and start to you know get everything staged properly and I think that resulted in uh, this footage kind of being heavily edited together to make it a little more coherent from several different uh, takes and this is the result we got Uh, it comes off more of like a precursor to the 
to the way you know, uh, the, like the Bourne movies where the way they're edited and everything. So, so anyway, he grabs the goon's knife and enters the room where he quickly closes it. He spins around and kneels, ready to throw the knife. Van sits at a desk in a well-decorated office, telling Bond not to kill him, at least not until we've had a drink. He introduces himself as Draco. Bond throws the knife into a wooden calendar on the shelf. Draco looks at it, commenting that today is the 13th. Bond says he's superstitious. Uh, this line was actually changed in uh, some cultures, uh, because the 13th, even the mention of it, is considered unlucky, so... Uh, Draco smiles and tells his personal assistant or his mistress, whoever she is, to get Bond a martini, shaken, not stirred, and a Campari for himself. He apologizes for the way he was brought to him, but fears that he wouldn't have accepted a formal invitation. Bond comments that Draco usually drinks Corsican brandy, to which Draco is curious as to what else he knows about. Bond says his full name is Mark Ange Draco, head of the Union Corps of one of Europe's biggest crime syndicates. Draco corrects him, saying that they're the biggest, but Bond counters, saying that an organization known as Spectre operates worldwide. He then tells Draco that his legitimate business fronts are more extensive, including construction, electrical supplies, and numeral agricultural holdings. Draco nods his head, but says his dossier is incomplete. He's also Teresa's father. Draco tells about Tracy's mother and how they met, offering Bond a cigarette. Bond declines, saying that he prefers his own. Draco continues, saying that he regrets not giving her a proper home, and she grew resistant to the point where he cut off her allowance upon which she rebelled. Bond asks why he's telling him all this, and this is something we'd all love to know. It's just a random exposition at this point. Draco says she married an Italian count without telling him. The count killed himself in his Maserati with one of his mistresses. He then laments that he gave her too much, but it brought her nothing. He says that she needs something like therapy. She needs help. Bond's help. Bond says she needs a psychiatrist, not him. Draco says she needs a man to dominate her, to make love enough to make her love him back. Yes, ah, uh, yes, that's 60s. Male sex dominance and all that. Jeez, still prevalent here. So Bond states that he overestimates him, that he, what he asks is not for him. Draco makes a proposal that on the day he marries her, he will give her a personal dowry of one million pounds in gold. Bond says he doesn't need a million pounds. Draco goes upset, calling Bond stupid. Bond mentions he has a bachelor's taste for freedom, but then the gears start turning, and he's like, maybe I can get something out of this. So he says that he knows that Draco has secret connection and wants to know where Ernst Stavro Blofeld is. Draco states that he found out, if he found out, he wouldn't tell Her Majesty's Secret Service, but he might tell his future son-in-law. Draco states that next week is his birthday, and that despite Tracy's estrangement, she always comes to visit him, that Bond says he'll sleep on the proposal. Next, we see Bond entering M's office, tossing his hat on the rack. Money Penny wonders where he's been. Much too far from you, darling, he tells her, kissing her on the cheek. She says he's the same old James, and then he grabs her butt! To which she exclaims, more so. Come on, James, sex, workplace uh, sexual harassment thing. She then calls him a heartless brute for not letting her know where he was or even sending a postcard. He then invites her to have cocktails at his place. Money Penny says that he would adore that, she would adore that if only. Three, two, one. Money Penny says she would adore that if she could only trust herself. Bond jokes, calling her Britain's last line of defense. She then tells Bond that he better go see M. He enters M's office, and M tells him he's relieving him of Operation Bedlam. Bond says he hasn't captured Blowfield yet, and that it's something of a must with him. M quips that he's had two years to run him down and hasn't done so. Bond feels that M doesn't have confidence in him anymore, but M denies it. He says it's useless to have a license to kill if you don't have a target, and he will find a more suitable assignment. <laughs> it's like, you have a license to kill, and damn it, you're going to use it. 
So Bond attempts to counter, but M interrupts and tells him that will be all. Bond exits, and Money Penny comments that that was quick. Bond asks her to take a memo. Sir, I have the honor for you to request my resignation effective forthwith. Money asks for what? Bond says from Her Majesty's Secret Service to a shocked Money Penny. He then informs her to present it to that monument there, referring to M. We next see Tracy driving through the beautiful Portuguese countryside. Draco is celebrating his birthday at a bullfight. He is made aware of Tracy's presence. She greets him, wishing him a happy birthday. He introduces her to Bond. She doesn't look very thrilled to see him, stating that they've already met. Bond quips that each time is a renewed pleasure. She looks at him coldly as she walks away. Draco says he can see that she likes him. Bond, in a funny line, says, You must give me the name of your oculist. Teresa is talking to Olympe, who's Draco's assistant or mistress or whoever. We, we never fully figure out what her role is here, but her name is Olympe. And she and Teresa knows that her dad is up to something and kind of uh, grills her about it. They eventually come to sit with the party and Bond pulls a chair out for her. She coldly asks him what he's doing here and Bond says that he was invited here and he's discussing a business deal with her father. They have champagne poured and Tracy quips that they wouldn't waste excellent champagne on a business deal unless she was part of the arrangement. Draco looks sternly at Olympa asking her what she's told her. Tracy sternly looks back at her dad and says not to blame her and saying that she figured it out herself, stating she's not his daughter for nothing. Bond smiles and says, I detect a family resemblance. She suggests Bond revise the term of his contract, stating that his liability would be far too expensive. She also deduces that Bond wants information. Smart lady. Draco attempts to feign ignorance, but she persists. She insists he tell him what Bond wants to know. When Draco resists, she reiterates, basically forcing him to tell him right there, even threatening to never see her again. Draco sighs and states that there may be a connection between Blofeld and a lawyer with officers with offices in Bern, Switzerland. The lawyer's name is Gumbold. Tracy then quips, so now, Mr. Bond need have no further interest in me. She excuses herself and Bond goes after her. He stops her and says that he was always taught that mistakes should be remedied, especially between friends or lovers. He adds as he wipes away her tears, then they hug. So then we cut to this romantic interlude set to the music of We Have All the Time in the World by Louis Armstrong. It's a very nice romantic song, and this whole sequence is shot very well, but it feels like it should be in a completely different movie entirely, not a Bond movie. I mean, we see them horseback riding, going for walks, having romantic evenings, they're frolicking on the beach, <laughs> having a grand old time, window shopping. I mean, this looks like something out of some sort of like romantic drama or romantic comedy, not a Bond film. But you don't see that. It's just kind of a wide shot of this construction site and you can make out the, the word Draco on the machinery, on like a crane and stuff like that. So you know Draco's involved in helping him with this. Uh, it's and it's uh, very well done, and I and I kind of miss that they don't really do that in movies uh, too much anymore. So anyway, a man down on the construction site throws a big black box into a bucket, and a crane lifts it up to Bond on the balcony. Bond pulls out the case and carries it inside. Open, he opens it, showing a portable copier with a safe cracking system. He sits back and waits for the machine to do its work. So back in Draco's car, Tracy says she needs to buy some things, but Draco says that things like that should be left to a girl's father who knows what's best for her. Pray 
Christmas trees Here's the reason why In the winter rain will freeze And the trees will die with a smile, but what can be better than being in love? Father looks at her and asks if Mr. Bond is in love with her. She says that may come too someday. Life's too short for someday, he quips back. Draco says he'll talk to him man to man, but Tracy urges him not to. She says that whatever happens, there'll be no regrets. So back at the office, Bond is still waiting. Whatever happened to that uh, pocket-sized mechanism he used in uh, You Only Live Twice? I mean, that little thing would ten times faster than this one. But it could be because Bond's on holiday, he doesn't have access to Q Branch, so he has to resort to this old-timey, you know, contraption thing. It's a dinosaur of a safe cracker. So he sees a new survivor rack and pulls on a newspaper. Hidden within the pages, Bond discovers uh, is a copy of Playboy magazine. Shame on you, Mr. Gumbel. So Bond peruses through it. I actually discovered that this is actually the February 1969 issue of... Now, outside at the construction site, the man assisting Bond patiently waits. Bond is looking at the centerfold when the machine finishes cracking the safe. He opens it, flips through some papers, comes across a few that can pique his interest. Runs them through the copier, and makes copies of the letters he found. The letters are signed by a Dublochon. And now an hour must have passed, because we see Mr. Gumbel returning. Bond puts everything back in the box, tosses it back, tucks it back into the bucket, where the crane takes it back to the construction site. He uh, tears out a centerfold of the magazine for some reason and leaves the office. I mean, why would he do that? You know, Mr. Gumbel, if it is his magazine, he's going to go through it and say, who took my centerfold? It's just blaming on one of his clients, I suppose. He glances at the centerfold before pulling up, and and he passes Mr. Gumbel again on the way out. So we then see Bond pull up to a mansion. He gets out and asks if the Admiral's in. M is inside working on his butterfly collection. He comments on a particular genus of butterfly being unusually small, to which M comments that he wasn't aware that his expertise included lepidoptery. This is actually the first time we see M's house. It's kind of nice. Again, nothing special. Pretty nice place. Uh, M then asks what he's doing here. Bond says it's about genealogy. He then presents M with the letter he found at Mr. Gumbold's office. He says they're written from a Count Balthazar de Blochon. M inquires about the name, and Bond says it's a French wolf of Blofeld. Uh, M reminds Bond that he's been relieved of Operation Bedlam, and Bond says he was hoping he would reassign him to it, as the letter was written to a Sir Hilary Bray at the College of Arms of London, upon which it's been requested they try to establish de Blochon's claim to the title. He further mentions that Sir Bray has responded, requesting they meet. He tells M that he has already taken the liberty to make contact with the Count, using his own query into his family's heraldry as a guise. So at the College of Arms, Bond meets with Sir Hilary, shows him his family coat of arms. He refers to it as the arms of Sir Thomas Bond, Baron of Peckham, died in 1734. The arms show a knight's helmet with a lion sitting atop it. Below the helmet is a shield with three bezants or gold balls blazoned on a chevron sable. Below is the family model, written in Latin, Orbis non sufficit, which means the world is not enough. Uh, he gives Bond a little bit more about the history of his family, stating that they traced his family back to Sir Othel Bond, who held the manor of Wickham Grove. 
by a knight's fee from the Earl of Thanet, 1387, uh, that he decides to get down to business. This is actually the first time we even hear about another member of Bond's family, another unique moment here in Bond history. So Sir Hilary explains that Count de Blochamp has reached back and agreed to meet with him, meaning me, Bond says. Sir Hilary complies and states that the only reason you'll go along with this is that it is a matter of national importance. Bond complies saying that he hasn't ex exaggerated and appreciates the help. Sir Hilary states that he has arranged to lose himself in the churches of Brittany and that he has wanted to do some brass rubbings there anyways and excuses why he's not in the church when they try and contact him. Sir Hilary then points out that oddly they want a description. Bond says that they'll technically respond so that it favors him. Sir Hilary complies and says that they will arrange for a time and place for him to be collected. Bond thinks this is suspicious, but Sir Hilary thinks it's more discreet. He says they didn't oppose to his offer of a payment of a thousand guineas either. Bond asks if their claim is genuine, and Sir Hilary says it's hard to say. He says that they don't like to act on anything unless they can guarantee no margin of error on their side or forgery on somebody else's. Sir Hilary says that the one physical trait that would be noticeable is that the real de Blochamps were all born without earlobes. So Hillary states that he should invite him to Augsburg as the Blochamps have coming there, been coming there for centuries. So we then see Bond taking a tram in Switzerland, packed with tourists and skiers. We also hear in the background, and it's placed throughout parts of the movie, in the background of what I think is one of the worst Christmas songs ever played. You know, I, it's so bad, I really don't even want to, you know, show it to you. But, alright, you guys twist my heart. That's right, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a Christmas movie, or what I call a Christmas movie that has nothing to do with Christmas, aka a non-Christmas Christmas movie, kind of like what Lethal Weapon and uh, Die Hard would be considered. Um, so anyway, a man and woman can be seen waiting. Another man with blonde hair seems to be watching them, but is trying not to look too obvious as he pretends to read a newspaper. Uh, Bond gets off the tram. He's wearing an Inverness coat. Which is a long coat with an attached cape similar to what Sherlock Holmes wore. He also wears a tweed trilby and glasses. So we see a similar coat and hat hanging in Sir, Sir Hillary's office. Uh, he clutches a pipe in his hand. The woman approaches him and asks him if he's Sir Hillary Bray, Baronet. He obliges and she introduces him as Fräulein Irma Wundt, personal secretary to the Count. They trade pleasantries as she asks him if he had a good journey to watch. Lies that it was quite intolerable, stating he's not a good traveler. Fräulein Wundt advises that Gunther men with her will take his baggage. Bond politely declines, but she insists he... Uh, as they walk to their transportation, she asks if he knows Switzerland, and he says no. He asks about her last name, and she, if she's from a naval family. Probably Boot looks confused. He explains that Boot is a nautical term, meaning the baggy or swollen parts of a sail. Quickly adds, nothing personal, of course. Yeah, sure, Bond. She finds it interesting, then asks if he speaks German, to which he says, I'm sure not, and then if he speaks French, to which he replies, that he only does but in a one-horse open sleigh, and Fräulein Wundt covers her and Bond with thick fur blanket, like bugs in a rug, she says, and they take off in the sleigh. The blonde-haired man follows them in a 1969 Volkswagen Beetle, which looks like he can barely make it through the snow. It really struggles. It's quite a sight. Uh, the sleigh arrives at a helicopter where they get off. Bond comments that he's never been on one before, and Fräulein Wundt states that he should knock out his pipe before they get in, to which, to which Bond does. The blonde-haired man stops and sees them take off. Bond looks at him as they ascend. Now we get a beautiful footage of the Swiss Alps. Continue with the small town 
Fraulein Wundt points to a group of downed trees, saying it's an avalanche damage. She asks if he likes skiing or bobsledding, to which Bond replies that he's not a sporting man, even when he's at his best. She asks him if he feels the air sickness, to which he grimly nods his head. She points to a lift shack and says that's the highest point the public can go and that everything upwards is strictly private, further stating that no one can come through without permission from the captain. She points to a building located high at the peak of the mountain, the Peace Gloria. Now, the Peace Gloria is actually a real-life revolving restaurant that was still under construction in 1968 when they were filming. Our production manager Hubert Froelich discovered it after spending weeks of location scouting in France and Switzerland. Uh, they made an agreement that uh, in order to allow them to film there and use it as uh, you know, this primary location, the studio agreed to finance the provision of electricity and the aerial lift. So it's kind of a nice little you know, agreement they made there. She says it's the, uh, the Lochon Institute for Allergy Research. Bond inquires about what kind of allergies, and Bond says all kinds, from hay fever to the sickness caused by oysters or the inability to eat meat. He refers to the Count as a specialist in his field. Bond says he'll be happy when he gets his feet on the ground as a helicopter circles to land, to which Fraulein Bond replies, no ground ice. They land and get out. They're met with some security guards dressed in orange jackets carrying some machine guns. Bond mentions that guns make him very nervous, and Fraulein Boone says it's to keep the spies from the chemical companies away, and that they're always trying to steal our discoveries. Bond complies about the world we live in being filled with avarice and deceit. Boone counter by saying that there's no avarice here, stating that the Blochon Institute is not for profit, but the Count does his work for the sake of mankind. They descend some stairs into an ice tunnel. Uh, Fraulein Boone calls up her boss and tells him, provide him with the usual comforts, and she takes him to his room where she instructs him that if he needs anything, to push this button, pointing to a series of buttons on the nightstand, and an attendant will come. She also points out that he must ring to have the door open. Bond takes off his hat and coat, revealing a tweed three-piece suit similar to the one Sir Hillary wore during a meeting with Bond. Bond then quips that it sounds like a complicated arrangement, but Boone assures that it's just to prevent the patients from leaving the rooms and disturbing each other when they should be resting. Uh, Staying in the Count leaves very strongly in undisturbed rest. Bond then asks when he can see the Count as they have a lot to discuss. Wood mentions that he will send for him when he's ready. She then invites him to join her for dinner in the Alpine room around 7, to which Bond agrees. After she leaves, Bond looks around the room, checking behind the wall decor and pictures for any bugs or wires, but doesn't find anything. He checks out the bathroom, inspecting the mirror to see if there's a two-way, and this could be another callback to what he did Goldfinger on the plane, but there aren't. Later that evening, Bond arrives for dinner wearing a traditional Highland dress, and yes, I had to look it up to see exactly what the hell he was wearing, as the only thing I recognized was the kilt. He wears a Prince Charlie coatee, which is basically a button jacket that's shorter, stopping just above the waist, uh, with the kilt, and a white shirt with a stand-up collar and lace jabot. Uh, jabot is a type of neckwear that was commonly worn in the 17th, 18th century, similar to what we would wear as a necktie. Uh, it was just basically a frilly, frilly fabric that hung over the chest. Now, most you'll see it is it's worn by judges in European court. Uh, Lord knows that George Lacey tries to pull it off, but this look is entirely and unintentionally hilarious. The Count takes off his lab coat, revealing a light brown Nehru jacket. They sit down, and the Count explains further. He shows that he was born without earlobes, a well-known congenital distinction of Blochamp ancestry, compared to the Habsburg lip or the hawk nose of the Medicis. Bond agrees, but states that the fact that he's of the Blochon ancestry doesn't necessarily make him the reigning count. 
Falcon says he can feel it in his bloods and in his bones. Vaughn says the college will provide more concrete proof. stating he has assembled all the relevant documents, title deeds, birth certificates, death certificates, states that he will have them sent to his room for authentication. Then asks Bond if he's comfortable here, and Bond says yes, but adds that he's puzzled by his remarkable clinic. Count states that he's devised a cure for allergies that depends on holding an unusual and rather delicate psychological balance. Therefore, he needs to impose special conditions on his patients. Bond points out the reason for the laboratory then, Count states that the cure is not entirely psychological and that vaccines are prepared and modified to suit each individual case. Count then informs him that he is unfortunately very busy and is not able to spare him as much time as he might wish. Bond states that he will need some of his time if he wishes to be confirmed as Count de Blochamp, adding that he would need details of any living relatives, including his parents and grandparents. Count says he will have the documents, but Bond cuts him off and says that the documents will only answer some questions, but not all. He also adds that it would be very helpful if the Count would accompany him to Augsburg. The Count looks confused. The ancestral home of the Blochamp family. There's a notable Blochamp tombs in the cathedral and some important records in the city archives. He adds that having them there will assist with his personal knowledge, but he's cut off before he can finish it. The Count says he may not be convenient for some time. He adds that he's determined that the title shall be recognized, then tells Sir Hilary he can proceed with his research. The Count escorts him out. Now, it's curious as to how Blofeld doesn't recognize Bond, considering they actually encountered one another and you only lived twice. As I mentioned, the script was actually written before you only lived twice, and Richard Maybaugh wanted to stick as close to the source material as possible. Since Honor Majesty's Secret Service takes place before you only lived twice in the book universe, they hadn't met yet, so and writer Roald Dahl for You Only Live Twice actually added the scene of Bond and Blofeld meeting face to face. Now, it could be that Blofeld suspects it's him, but is going along with the ruse, which is why I decided to never change it for the film. Could be the, uh, the, the, the Superman hidden technique because Bond is wearing glasses and dressed in a kilt, you know, and maybe, you know, he can hide through that guise, I suppose. Um, who knows? It's, it's a mystery that remains unexplained. Um, another curious anecdote, the writers actually toyed with the idea of having Bond go through plastic surgery to explain his different facial features, which again could be why Blofeld doesn't recognize him, but this idea was ultimately scrapped uh, to, as an explanation as to why you know, Bond suddenly looks like George Lazenby and not Sean Connery. I'm glad they scrapped that. So anyway, uh, Bond back, arrives back to his room and lifts up his kilt. The number eight is written on his thigh. He thinks about it, but gives up the notion. We later see him at his desk doing work. I mean, I know it's pretending to be silly here, right? but does he have to go full at it and inspect the documents for real? I mean, you know, maybe he's doing Sir Hillary a favor by actually documenting this stuff, even though he knows this guy's a phony. Uh, and it's really Blofeld. It's... Perhaps he's doing it because he feels like he's hidden, being monitored by a hidden camera.
Soban seems to have a hankering for sex. <laughs> he looks at the door and picks up a ruler, removing the metal end. Feels through the doorframe and receives a shock. So he breaks an eraser in half and places the metal in between and uses a clip to hold the eraser. Tries again and it hits the button to the open the door. Makes his way to room number eight. The girl is excited to see him and says he brought the book. She goes to turn on the lamp, but he tells her to keep it off. She says she wants to look at the pictures, and Bond starts throwing out some old lines. Do a picture of yourself, and twice as lovely in the firelight. She says he's funny, pretending not to like girls. He says, well, I don't usually, but you're not usual. That lipstick was an inspiration. So are you. Oh, so Hillary. Sir Hillary, she exclaims. Call me Hilly, he replies. She likes that. He asks her name, and she says it's Ruby Bartlett from Lancashire. More combat Bay, actually. Now, the actress who plays Ruby, Angela Scular, actually appeared in the 1967 non-eon film Casino Royale. She had a small role in that. Uh, interesting to note there. Now, she says she doesn't want to talk about that now, and they kiss. takes off his jabo and drops his kilt. Afterwards, Bond asks again how she ended up here. They're lying in bed. Post-coital, I'm guessing. Uh, Ruby explains how her family owned a from chicken farm and she was awfully allergic to chickens. A specialist told her about the Swiss clinic and she met Fraulein Bunt in London who said she had a very interesting case. As they start kissing again, some psychedelic lights start turning out of her bed and a voice recording of the count can be heard. says it's part of the cure and lies down with her head, arms crossed on her chest. We see the Count loading the cassettes for each patient. Bond tries to get her attention, but she seems to be in a trance as he looks down on her inquisitively. He tries to wake her, but it's no use. He sneaks his way back to his room. Once inside, he heads to the bathroom where he sees a woman appear behind him in the mirror. Bond asks how she got out, and she reveals a fingernail. Then he lays down the same line he gave Ruby. She falls for it, and he asks her her name, which he says later, and they kiss as they lay down on the bed. Oh, Bond. Thank you. 
The next morning, we see the blonde man inquiring about Pei's glory. He asks if he can take the lift to the top. They tell him no, it's private. He says that he, it's got to be a sports club or restaurant. He's seen them advertised. It's all closed down, he's told by the guards. He says, Since when? I've seen them advertised, I tell you. I'll, I'll see about it. The guard says he's mistaken and they've been finished for a week now. And that from here upwards, it is now forbidden. Private, closed. The man complies and leaves. Up at Peace Glory, the ladies are having some fun playing curling. Bond walks up and greets them. Fraulein Boont says good morning and asks him to come up and do some curling. Bond says sounds frightfully energetic and asks one of the girls to show him how to do it. We then see a helicopter passing by and the blonde-haired man is rock climbing up to the summit. shoot at him and he falls but is captured. Uh, the Count arrives greeting the ladies and Bond slash Sir Hillary and the Count asks how, how the research is going. Bond says it's going well. It looks very promising. haired man up asking where when it became a crime to go mountain climbing the bound when the count looks down tells him that peace glory is private property the man scoffs saying the whole bloody alp ridiculous the count says that there are many signs and his servant warned him already the count instructs him that he will be uh, the count instructs him that he will be taken down by cable cart and it won't be disturbed again the guards push the guy as he walks away. There's a really bizarre edit here as the one guard pushes his gun into the guy's neck and then we see a really quick edit with the man's reaction if they splice the two frames together, but it wasn't 100% aligned, so it's really strange. Uh, the man threatens to go to the authorities, but the Count doesn't look worried. Bond approaches the Count and requests to take a cable car down, stating he needs the afternoon off. Count cuts him off, saying that he already had the morning off. Bond says he needs some fresh air as his ancestors are a very hard worker. Count states that the College of Arms is being very well paid as if to imply something. Bond gets the hint. He says he'll show him what he has, but then they can go then they can go to Augsburg. Count says that over Christmas as the archives would be closed, to which Bond agrees. The girls are dismissed from the curling. As they leave, the girl Bond was with in his room last night says she needs to see him and she'll see him. Bond sneaks out and heads to Ruby's room. He's looking like Mr. Rogers, wearing slacks, white shirt, and a tan cardigan sweater. Honestly, looks like someone's father or grandfather with this getup. 
She pulls back the curtain and Ruby's bed and calls her. He sits down on the bed and Fraulein Boot sits up staring at him. Fancy meeting you here, Fraulein. Bond says flabbergasted and then he gets knocked out. So when Bond awakens, he's on a couch in the Count's office. He sees a Christmas tree nearby. The Count arrives and says, Merry Christmas, 007. Bond tries to keep up the ruse by saying he's Sir Hilary Bray, but the Count chuckles and says, No, no, Mr. Bond. He adds that respectable baronets from the College of Heralds do not seduce female patients in clinics. Shame on him. Shame on you, Bond, thinking with your dignity. The Count further adds that, on the other hand, they do get their professional details right. He states that the Blochamp tombs are not in the Augsburg Cathedral, as he said, but rather at Sir St. Anna Kirch, and that Sir Hilary Bray would have known that. So why didn't the real Sir Hilary Bray tell Bond that? Kind of threw him into the crap right there. The Count refers to it as a small slip while holding Bond's glasses, and he'll take more than a few props to turn 007 into a herald, and he snaps the glasses in two. Bond counters by saying he'll take more than cutting off your earlobes, Blofeld, to turn you into a Count. Blofeld, unfazed that Bond knows who he is, says that he may surprise him, but then Bond has no further surprises left for him. Then points out all that he knows all about your mission. Your colleague says throwing a jacket and pack down at Bond's feet. Such a keen climber, such a brilliant conversationalist before he left us. Uh, he's referring to the blonde haired man that was uh, hanging about uh, in this case. So Bond says, You realize he's reported where I'm at. I doubt that, Blofeld coolly replies. And then adds that no one's going to come to the rescue, and that in a few hours the United Nations will receive his Yuletide greetings. He exposits that the information he now possesses the scientific means to control or to destroy the economy of the whole world, and that people have more important things about that than him, if they believe your threat, Bond says. Blofeld says they will, as he has prepared a demonstration. He then asks Bond if he remembers that outbreak of foot and mouth as he did in England last summer, and how she instructed the UN in a very convincing terms exactly how he arranged that. He adds that his capacity has improved since allergy vaccines, Bond inquires. He starts thinking, and he realizes bacteria, bacteriological warfare, with a difference. He further exposes that the great breakthrough since last summer has been the confection of a certain omega virus. Infertility, Bond says. Total infertility in plants and animals, Bond adds. Not just disease in a few herds, Mr. Bond, or the loss of a single crop, but the destruction of an whole strain forever throughout an entire continent. He adds that if his demands are not met, he'll proceed with the systematic extinction of a whole series of cereals and livestock all over the world. Bond supposes that includes the human race. Blofeld says the UN will not let it come to that, not after their scientists analyze a small sample of the Omega virus they received. Bond thinks again, epidemics of sterility, since nothing is born, no seed even begins to sprout. He adds that they'll find an antidote, and of course, it might give them time. Bond says that once they're warned, he'll have a problem dispensing the stuff. Special agents of death. Those girls, Bond asks. Those girls and many others like them, Bond. 
Blofeld says. Bond asks how, but Blofeld says that will remain his secret. Bond then asks how many hundred millions is he asking for this time, to which Blofeld replies that this time the price is of another kind, and that Bond will be amused when he knows what that is. In the meantime, Blofeld says he'll keep Bond here as his guest and be useful in helping him to convince the authorities that I mean what I say and I do what I claim. I like that. He then says they'll show him to his new quarters. Before they take him to his room, they lead Bond down a hallway where Blofeld unlocks a door. says they'll show him to his new quarters. Before they take him to his room, they lead Bond down a hallway where Blofeld unlocks the door, saying that as he's going to be with him for some time, he's going to give him a little therapy to soothe his restless nature. Bond looks out a window and sees his colleague hanging there, dead. Blofeld looks and says, oh, poor fellow, he was restless too. Then calls the British perverse because they love to exercise, saying that every year there's dozens of amateur climbers that wind up in the same predicament. He calls it a waxwork show for morbid tourists. Bond then tries to escape by attacking the guards. He manages to get a couple punches in, but they're able to hold him at gunpoint. They place Bond in the room, which is a maintenance room for the lift's gears. Uh, back in P's glory, Fraulein Boone surprises all the ladies with gifts, but tells them to wait for everyone to arrive before they open them. In the gear room, Bond tries climbing up and hold on to one of the metal beams, but the lift starts moving and Bond dangles there from a narrow space between the gears. After it stops, Bond gets his footing, and using his quick wits, tears out the lining of his pockets and uses them as makeshift gloves. He then climbs up to grab onto the steel cable. He starts sliding across it military style, but the lift starts moving again. He has to jump to avoid getting crushed and finds himself dangling once again. In peace glory, the girls are uh, put into their trance and they fall asleep. Bond is able to get back on the cable and make his way across the gap to the other large cable pulley and gets outside. It's starting to snow. He grabs onto the cable and hangs from his hands, slowly making his way down the cable. Another cable car starts coming up, and to avoid being hit, Bond, at the last second again, leaps onto the cable that guides the car. He manages to get on the roof of the cable car and climb back into the Peace Gloria. Blofeld instructs the girls, who are now hypnotized, to open their presents and reveals a transistor disguised as a makeup kit. He instructs them on how to use it given the right time. Bond is able to catch a glimpse of most of this. He makes his way down the elevator to Blofeld's office. The guard at a desk hears the elevator ding, but sees no one get off as he goes to investigate. Bond attacks, and they trade a couple of punches before Bond subdues the man. Now, I should bring this up. This is one of the minor issues I have with the, before, with the film. George Lazenby's fighting. The man throws a punch like an orangutan, swinging its arms. It's just all stiff and awkward, you know, no bend to the uh, elbow or anything. It's ridiculous. Actually, the fighting was a big issue, so again, going back to with the stunt coordinators and everything involved, you know, having to do this, so. Uh, it actually ended up prolonging the shoot more than usual because they had to keep stopping and blazing me to set up every fight scene. Anyway, Bond drags the unconscious guard into a nearby maintenance room just as the girls are leaving and emerges wearing a blue ski outfit. Puts on a stocking hat, grabs a pair of skis, and skis down the hill, escaping. Blofeld's guard spots him. 
and shoot at him, but he manages to continue on. One of the films, this is one of the film's more excellent scenes. The skiing chases here are excellently shot and well choreographed. It's highly suspenseful, especially when combined with that title theme by John Barry. I mean, the guys, they're like the filmmakers are like, like the cameramen are on skis at times. And they're just like right there in the action. It doesn't look um, phony at all. It's, it's just incredible. But Blofeld and his men take pursuit, uh, chasing them while holding on to machine guns. Man, these men must be Olympic quality skiers to be able to ski down a mountain without poles. They think they lost him when Blofeld spots him and they continue pursuit. The guard lays down a flare so the others can follow. The guard shoots at Bond and his ski gets hit. He loses control and slides and crashes into a snowbank. He gets up and throws away his broken skin, continues pursuit down the mountain on one ski. Now one of Blofeld's goons flies off a bank and into a tree. In a pretty funny moment, Blofeld calls a guy an idiot as he skis by. Uh, Pond races down, but he has to slide to a stop as he reaches a cliff. He sees another one of Blofeld's men plummet over the cliff. That's an obvious dummy moment, but still kind of suspenseful as they show the entire fall all the way until you hear him see the poof of the powder as he hits the ground. Uh, two more goons come out and attack Bond. He manages to throw another one off the cliff and he strangles another with his ski. He latches the ski back to his boot and takes off down a safer path toward the village below. Down in the village, Fräulein Boot has the Angels of Death board a bus. She spots Bond trying to escape and gets in a 1963 Mercedes 220S. They make their way through the holiday crowd and spot Bond ducking into a building. One of the goons gets out of the car and follows him. What appears to be some sort of bell foundry, Bond surprises attacks the gun-toting goon and they scuffle bells clanging all the while. Bond finally gets the drop on him as he knocks him over the hanging bells into onto the man. Pun intended. finally gets the drop on him as he knocks over the hanging bells onto the man. Bond intended. Bond puts on a hideous plaid jacket to disguise himself and makes his way through the crowd in an attempt to lose Fräulein Boot and Blofeld's guards. Now we hear that terrible Christmas song. Why? So here we hear that terrible Christmas song again. Why? Why? God, it's so awful, I hate so Bond heads into the skating rink, where he's surprised by a man taking photos while uh, wearing a ratty-looking polar bear costume. Bond sits down to collect his thoughts as he seems to have uh, lost Boont and his men when a skater comes up and stops in front of him. He looks up and sees a familiar face smiling back at him. It's Tracy. She sits down on his lap and says he looks troubled. Well, this is convenient. Bond says there are... No, she doesn't say that. That's what I said. Uh, Bond says there are people after him and asks if she has a car. She says yes. At that moment, fireworks start shooting up. Bond uses this opportunity for him and Tracy to make their escape while everyone is distracted. 
They run up to a street, but Vaughn stops them as they see the Mercedes backing up. Tracy directs them to a side door, and they make their way to her Mercury Cougar. Uh, they drive off, and Tracy asks where they're heading. Vaughn says to the nearest post office to contact London. She asks why they're after him, and Vaughn supposes that they're trying to kill him. Tracy looks at him worried. Meanwhile, Fraulein Boot and the goons get back in the Mercedes and take off. Back in Tracy's car, Vaughn thanks her, saying she has sharp eyes and beautiful earlobes. He says the last part hesitantly, as if he's not sure what to say. It's you know, like he wants to compliment her, to legitimately show sympathy for her assistance, but doesn't exactly know how. He then asks what she's doing here. She says she found a new interest in life. Vaughn guesses it's winter sports, and she says, and says it's very wholesome, but she says it's just one winter sportsman, and that her papa told her where to find him, giving him a knowing look. She leans over to kiss him and nearly hits a passing car on the highway. Please, Tracy, pay attention to the road. Vaughn says, just keep your mind on your driving. They make it to the post office and Vaughn goes in to make a call when shots ring out. Vaughn ducks. Rowland Boot and the goons are attempting a drive-by shooting. Tracy starts moving the vehicle as Vaughn runs along the upper part of the sidewalk. He rushes down and gets in as the gunshots continue. Tracy takes a nasty turn but handles it well to outrun their Mercedes. As they head down the road, Bond kisses her on the cheek, calling her a good girl. She smiles back. The Cougar is clearly a more powerful vehicle than Mercedes, with better traction, too. Uh, Tracy navigates the plowed road with ease, while the Mercedes keeps sliding and hitting into the snowballs left by the plows. Uh, when Tracy takes another turn without trouble, the Mercedes loses control and drives into the snow-covered grass. Bond leads over and kisses her on the ear. Bond advises Tracy to turn into a nice uh, stock car race that's going on, saying that the crowd may discourage them. They find themselves stuck in the race, banging off of cars left and right. Uh, Mercedes joins in. You must have hit rush hour, Bond exclaims. Mercedes can't get around a Mini Cooper in the race. Boots says, knock him out anyway. The driver of the Mini tries to stay on course, but they knock him off and he flips over. Uh, the race is getting too chaotic now as the cars are just banging into each other. It's turned into like a demolition derby more than a regular race. Uh, Tracy asks how they can get out. One of the goons tries to shoot them again, but continues to miss. Tracy uses one of the race cars to bang into the Mercedes, which causes it to flip. Bond then tells him to get out uh, towards an opening in the track, which appears to be a back area for the drivers. Tracy takes it, avoiding people along the way. Boont and the goons manage to get out of the overturned Mercedes just as it explodes. Hey, you gotta have a car explode in a car chase. As they drive out of there, Tracy laughs and says they didn't even need to stop for the they didn't even stop for the prize. As they drive on, it starts snowing. 
apart. Wipers can't keep up with the blizzard and ends up freezing up. Bond gets out to try and clear the windshield when he sees a bar nearby. He has Tracy drive up to it. Bond jumps out and opens the door and Tracy pulls it in. They look around the old barn as a couple of horses look up. Sorry about the accommodation, Contessa, Bond jokes. Tracy shakes her head and says, we should have called ahead and booked, joking back. Bond says he wishes he had gotten through to London. Tracy then says they'll get another chance, but Bond is doubtful. Then they hear a loud bang. They both turn their glances upward in surprise. It's the barn window banging in the wind. Bond rushes up and locks it. Bond suggests they get some rest. They make a cozy bed in the hay with some blankets as a snowstorm rages on outside. She asks what he was doing up there, and he merely comments that His Majesty's Secret Service is still his job. He says that there isn't anything he can do about this job at the moment, and when he agrees, he asks why he's thinking about it. They, can't, they kiss, but then Bond says that an agent's job shouldn't be concerned with anything but himself. She says she understands. He then says he'll guess he'll have to find something else to do. She looks a little taken aback and asks if he's sure. Then we hear Bond say something we've never heard him say to another woman. Well, at least not with true emotion uh, behind it. He tells Tracy he loves her. And in another shocking sentimental moment, asks her to marry him. He says he knows he'll never find another girl like her. He gets her eyes get all misty and she asks if it means it. Bond says yes. They passionately kiss. This is Mrs. James Bond, he says, of Acacia Avenue, Tunbridge Wells. Starting out with three, two. Of Acacia Avenue. Tunbridge Wells, she adds. How about Belgrave Square, Marcus? Or the Via Benito Rome? Paris, he replies. Convenient for the 2K. Monaco, she says. Handy for the Rainiers. Bond then looks up and asks how much they're asking for this place. <laughs> she laughs and pulls it back in for another kiss. Bond stops kissing them, but the proper time for this would be on their wedding night, and that's his New Year's resolution. Tracy smiles and rolls her eyes. She picks her up. He picks her up and lays her down in a large manger while he sleeps on the hay on the ground. They say goodnight. Bond then picks up a pole and kicks out the leg of the manger, causing it to topple on one side. Tracy is startled as he rolls into Bond's arms. He then says, it's not New Year's yet, as they make love. The next morning, we see Blofeld and his men arrive, having tracked the car to the barn. How the tracks still show up in the snow when there was a snowstorm, I'll never know. They burst the doors open and look around, but there's nowhere to be found. Now, eagle-eyed viewers will notice that during the chase, Tracy's cougar has two pairs of skis on the ski rack of the car, when the, but when the men arrive, they're missing. This indicates that they've taken off on those skis. Blofeld sees the far side of the barn open and runs to it where he sees ski tracks. We get another glorious shot of the mountains, this time with some more excellent cinematography of Bond and Tracy skiing. They see the Sagoon skiing down after them and another chases on. They ski over snow-covered houses. Bond uses one as a ramp as they attempt to evade Blofeld and his men. They make their way to an area where a giant snowblower is clearing a path on the road. Bond leaps over the road, but one of the goons isn't so lucky as he shorts a jump in and in a slightly gruesome moment gets pulled into the blades of the snowblower. The snow shooting out of the blower goes from pristine white to blood red. He had lots of guts, Bond quips to Tracy. Now's not the time for Pond's 007. They ski towards a bobsled area. Blofeld looks over at the cliffside and fires off an avalanche charge, creating an avalanche. Bond and Tracy try to outrun it, but it's much too fast and they get swallowed up. Even some of the goons get taken out by it. As they tumble through the avalanche, Bond and Tracy try to get a hold of one another, but 
gets separated. After the avalanche subsides, we do see tree debris sliding down in a snow mist of the aftermath. Again, a very nice shot. Uh, Blofeld looks on with his binoculars and it's a grave deep enough even for a 007 to be unable to walk on. He spots Tracy lying there, partially buried in his own, set those men together. Why? Never explained why he decided that. Bond wakes up, shaking his head. Later? Maybe a day later? We see Bond staring outside the window. Bond staring outside the window of M's office. We see a nice projection of Tracy being dragged away on the exterior of the window as if Bond is reminiscing about seeing the moment being helpless to save her. Uh, the UN calls M and Bond impatiently. The UN calls M and Bond impatiently paces the floor while M speaks to him. M hangs up and tells Bond that there's been no official decision yet except for a total news blackout. However, his informant in the UN says it's very plain that they plan to buy Blofeld off. Bond does not like the sound of that. The price total amnesty, plus a pardon for all past crimes, and official recognition of his title when he retires into private life as Count de Blochon. Bond asks when they plan to make the offer. M says that Blofeld wants a decision by midnight the first day after tomorrow. Bond says that gives them time to get to his glory first, in force. M shakes his head and says he has clear instructions. Bond says they can destroy the Institute and Blofeld's virus with it. M says it's been rejected as too risky. Bond says if they can destroy the center of communication with those girls, they won't do anything. M still declines, saying that he has his orders, and so does 007. Bond then inquires that about Tracy, saying that we just can't leave her there. Bond coldly replies that the department is concerned with his personal problem. Bond says this department owes her a debt because she saved his life. M's lawyer responses, Operation Bedlam is dead. Frustrated, Bond leaves. He makes a phone call to Draco asking him if he's interested in a certain demolition job that requires aerial activity to deliver it. We then see three helicopters flying in the air. They're disguised as Red Cross choppers. Bond and Draco are in one. Draco asks if Bond if he's certain that Tracy is up there. Bond says yes, but if she can't, then they still have something else to take care of. Draco calls it quite the crusade. Sits down and Blofeld hands her the glass, telling her that he will be able to offer anything her heart could wish for as he sits on the armrest next to her. Paid for with how many lives, she coldly asks, moving to a chair away from Blofeld. He moves toward her, telling her not to be so proud, exclaiming that her own father's profession is not entirely within the law, basically comparing her father to him. On the helicopter, they being informed that they are approaching private airspace. His Gloria, Blofeld continues his vain attempts to woo Tracy. I can make you a countess, she says, but I'm already a countess, she replies. Blofeld is interrupted by something on the radio waves and he leaves to hear it. Zurich Air Control can be heard attempting to reach out to the unidentified aircraft. One of the guards says that none of the three helicopters have responded to their suspect aircraft in the vicinity. On the helicopter, 
Draco response in that they are Red Cross helicopter carried Red Cross medical supplies to Italy. Yes, what's the trouble? Pain's Gloria, Tracy recognizes that voice. Zurich says they have no record of this flight plan or his registration. Draco says their registration is out of date. Zurich says they need to land. Draco's asked if they wish to commit murder for their state. This is a mercy flight carrying blood, plasma, and emergency equipment for the victims of the Italian flood disaster, Rovigo. Tracy continues to listen in and smiles. Blofeld says there's nothing that leaves the radio room. Bond says it's time to have it settled. And Draco says, it's good to have someone to rendezvous with in case someone gets left behind. Bond says they have some company point out a couple of Swiss military jets flying behind them. So back on P's Gloria, Tracy sits down and tells Blofeld she's been thinking about his proposition and asks to tell him more. Zurich Air Control continues to say they have no record of them. Draco tells them to check with Red Cross Geneva and asks them to call off their air forces for scaring the passengers. Radio opera then asks about the passengers, and Draco wittingly replies that they are distinguished members of the world press, so the jets are called off. Now on P's Gloria, Tracy is still pretending to woo Blofeld. She asks to take him to the Alpine room so she wants to, so she can see the dawn. As they arrive, she asks when Blofeld expects to receive word. Uh, Blofeld looks at his watch and says, around midnight tonight. Uh, Tracy then quotes an amended part of James Elroy Flecker's poem, Hassan, stating, Thy dawn, O master of the world, thy dawn. For thee the sunlight creeps across the lawn. For thee the ships are drawn down to the waves. For thee the markets throng with myriad slaves. For thee the hammer on the anvil rings. For thee the poet of beguilement sings. Now, before Blofeld can respond, gunfires her, and they both duck as helicopters come screaming by. The ambush has begun. Tracy breaks the champagne bottle and attacks a guard, but he manages to overpower her. The man tries pushing her hand onto a piece of broken glass, but she manages to claw his face, and he backs off. She runs around a partition, and he grabs her through it. She manages to yank him through it, and he falls down the stairs. Bond jumps off the plane, and he starts sliding down the deck of the facility, gunning down Mammoth. It would be a comical move at a moment if it didn't actually come off. It's actually kind of cool. Uh, so Tracy tries to get out, but the man she knocked down grabs her, and she spins him around, throwing him into a spiked wall decor that Blofeld has hanging up. Bond and Draco infiltrate the compound. After making sure Tracy is okay, Bond leaves her with her father and goes after Blofeld. Draco's men keep gunning down the guards and start blowing up sections of the place, Bond makes his way into the lab, and a scientist throws a bottle of acid at him as Bond shoots him. The acid hits the glass wall nearby and just burns a hole through it. Bond makes like this you know, quick glance at it, like, what the heck are you throwing at me? Uh, Bond makes his way into Blofeld's office and manages to find a hidden map, displaying where he plans to disperse the virus. Uh, meanwhile, Draco's men set a bomb to go off in five minutes and ten seconds. So it's just a very strange, you know, odd time to be setting. Usually it's like straightforward five minutes ten minutes whatever so but five minutes and ten seconds gotta get them that extra ten seconds to get out of there i guess uh every second counts so bond takes out more goons as he makes his pursuit for blofeld meanwhile tracy is frantic and tries to get back to bond despite her father's insistence to get on the helicopter keep her from running back into the building that's about to explode he knocks her out and puts her on the helicopter did it for love i'm sure he'll explain to her uh, so we see the timer reach zero as Draco is counting down, and then it takes another eight seconds, believe me, I counted this, for the place to actually explode. This is uh, So they, this gives Blofeld and Bond enough time to get out. So uh, they 
this probably could have been edited better and have then the timer reach zero just after Bond jumps out of the building. But we literally see the timer click to zero and then Bond and Blofeld are still scurrying about for an extra eight seconds. It's like delayed timer or what? So uh, Blofeld slides down the snow and then he sees his facility blow up, which is a marvelous model explosion. Uh, he makes his way to a bobsled track and climbs into one. Bond follows him and does the same. Bond tries shooting at him while driving, but can't control the sled at the same time. Uh, Blofeld grabs the steering cables with one hand and starts firing at Bond, but can't get a good shot. Blofeld must be a pretty great bobsled player. Maybe he should give up crime and uh, you know, enlist in the Olympics or something. He then pulls on the brakes, sending bits of ice flying at Bond, creating kind of a makeshift smoke screen. Bond can't see, and his sled slams into Blofeld's. Uh, Blofeld grabs a grenade and hurls it on the track. Bond leaps out at the last second as the bobsled explodes. Uh, Bond then leaps on a Blofeld sled and is being dragged. He climbs up there and they have a fight. Uh, Blofeld tries to push Bond's head up against the ice wall. Thank God for that helmet he's wearing. And Bond manages to knock him back. He pushes Blofeld up, who gets his neck rung up in a tree branch hanging over the track. Uh, Bond jumps out of his sled as it careens off the track and crashes down a hill. So now we next come to the big events. We see Bond and Tracy at their wedding. A man announces them as Mr. and Mrs. James Bond. They kiss and Bond wipes a tear away from Tracy's face. What a happy occasion. At the outdoor reception, they cut the cake. Everyone is in attendance, including M, Moneypenny, and Q. We see M talking with Draco, who mentions that it's a pleasure to meet the man who cost me three of my best operators. Uh, Draco said to M. M replies with, oh yes, November 64, the bullion job. This is another callback to Goldfinger. Um, and adds that Draco even got away with a chunk of the haul. Does this allude that Draco was partners with Goldfinger or somehow had a hand in it? He, maybe he just wasn't present at that? I don't know. So some more investigating into that, I suppose. So Q approaches Bond, offering his congratulations and states, I always thought you were a little, uh... Tracy cuts him off and says, irresponsible? Q says, exactly. That's the word. Thank you. I love that moment. Nice, nice little, uh camaraderie there between uh, Tracy and, uh, and Q. So Q adds that his at this time, he can't complain. Tracy goes to greet her father, and Q tells Bond that he's always there if he has anything he needs. Bond quips that he has all the gadgets he needs, and he knows how to use them. Wink, wink. Moneypenny is a blubbery mess as Bond and Tracy drive on his DBS, which is overly decorated in flowers. Bond tosses her his hat. Perhaps she always thought it would be her to marry Bond, although, again, she keeps turning him down every chance she gets. She tells them that she always cries at weddings, and Q remarks that 007 never takes care of government property, taking the hat and fixing it. It's all crushed and everything. Bond and Tracy are driving off toward their honeymoon. Bond says he hasn't given her a wedding present yet. She says she has an idea about that. Three girls, three boys. Not bad for a start. Bond replies. Bond adds that now they have all the time in the world. As they're driving, a horn starts honking from behind them. Bond lets them pass. It's a group of hippies. Say it with flowers, one of them shouts. Bond pulls over to, to an overlook and says, he's got a point. We do look like a flower shop. As Bond takes off all the floral arrangements from the car, she says that he's given her the best gift, a future. Bond puts one of the flower stems in her mouth and tells her not to eat it all at once. She starts picking the flowers, jokingly playing the he loves me, he loves me not game. They kiss and Bond is about to get back in the car when we see Blofeld wearing a neck brace driving a 1964 Mercedes 600. 
Fraulein Bunt is in the back seat. She leans out the window with a submachine gun and fires. What is with this lady and drive-by shootings? Bullets hit the DBS as Von ducks. Blofeld, he exclaims as he rushes back to the car. He tells Tracy it is Blofeld, but she doesn't respond. He looks over and we see her beautiful face covered in blood. A bullet has gone through the windshield and hit her right in the forehead. She's dead. Vaughn grabs her and hugs her tight, crying as he does so. A cop pulls up. Bond looks up and tells him that they'll be along soon and that there's no hurry, as they have all the time in the world. He kisses her hand as he fights back. So, Honor Majesty's Secret Service was released on December 18th, 1969, with its premiere once again held at the Odeon Leicester Square in London. As the avalanche sequence had been recorded in stereo, the Odeon had installed a new speaker system to highlight this effect. Filled open in the U.S. at the number one spot, dethroning the animated children's film A Boy Named Charlie Brown. It only stayed there for four weeks before being knocked out by the Western classic Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which reclaimed that spot after its 17th week on the charts. Now, in the beginning, I mentioned that Lazenby had signed a seven-picture deal to play 007. Well, what happened? Well, upon the assist insistence, three... Two, one. Well, upon the insistence of his manager, Ronan O'Rahili, he decided he wanted to sever his contract and not do the seven films. O'Rahili told him to decline the seven-picture deal as he felt the James Bond character was out of touch with the times and that he would not successfully continue into the 1970s. Who's laughing now, O'Rahili? To get his point across of not wanting to continue as Bond, Lazenby showed up to the premiere looking very unBond-like. As the producers were expecting him to promote the film with well-kept hair and clean-shaven, Lazenby showed up sporting a beard and shoulder-length hair. This put further strain on the already fragile relationship he had with Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. Because Lazenby had informed him that this would be his only outing, and because there was a lack of gadgets used in the film, there were very few items of merchandise produced, aside from the soundtrack album and a film edition of the book. Corgi Toys did produce a number of toys, including uh, Tracy's Mercury Cougar, uh, Campbell, who was the man that was Bond's colleague that, that was mountain climbing and got killed, uh, his VW Beetle, and two versions of the bobsled, one that had the 007 logo on it and one with the Piz Gloria logo. Uh, Honor Majesty's Service was only nominated for one award. George Lazenby was nominated for New Star of the Year in the actor category at the 1970 Golden Globes, although he did lose out to John Boyd for Midnight Cowboy. Needless to say, despite the nomination, Lazenby's career did not take off, and he would later go on to regret passing up such an amazing opportunity. Now, can you imagine how the Bond universe would have played out had Lazenby continued on with Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, and For Your Eyes Only? I mean, think about it. Roger Moore would have been too old by 1983 when Octopussy was made. Would that, would that mean that Timothy Dalton possibly would have done Octopussy and A View to a Kill, along with his other two films, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. That, whew, kind of mind-blowing. What an alternate universe of that. All right, now it's time for the uh, reviews. So uh, I myself, I thoroughly enjoy this movie. I give it three and a half out of four stars. Um, I do think this is one of the best Bond films ever made. Um, and it is one of the more underrated ones. A lot of people gave it a lot of flack just mainly because of Lazenby. Yes, Lazenby isn't the greatest Bond. So prefer any of the others uh, over him. He still usually hits, always hits my bottom best to worst list of Bonds. He's okay. He's not great. 
Um, but I think the, where it really excels is the plot line, uh, the story itself, uh, the, a lot of the action sequences, uh, and, and especially that score uh, is what really hits there. Plus, Diana Rigg, uh, her, her character Tracy is uh, arguably my favorite Bond woman of all time. Um, she's tough. She's resilient. She's, uh, you know, she, she doesn't allow Bond to, you know, uh, to guide her around and, uh, you know, take control of her and everything like that. And I think that's one of the things why Bond liked her so much is because she was so, uh, self-motivated and I think it's just a fantastic role. Uh, I love, uh, Telly Savalas as, uh, Blofeld. I think he does a fantastic job. So, so the star, so the film really excels in those areas, not so much with the lead. Again, Lazenby is okay. Um, if he had stuck around and done a few more films, he probably would have like, uh, kind of settled into the role and we probably would have gotten to know, gotten them a little bit better. But, uh, overall, I think it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a really fun film. Now, Others may disagree with me. Most reviews were mixed, with the major criticism, of course, being Lazyby himself. Members of the British press often referred to him as the Big Fry, which was a reference to his only other acting experience in that Fry's chocolate advertisement. Uh, Derek Malcolm of The Guardian dismissed Lazenby's performance, stating that he's not a good actor, and though I never thought Sean Connery was all that stylish either, there are moments when one yearns for a little of his louche panache. Despite the heavy criticism of Lazenby, he did say that the film was a jolly frolic in the familiar money-spinning fashion. Tom Milne of The Observer was even more scathing, saying, I fervently trust Honor Majesty's Secret Service will be the last of the James Bond films. <laughs> He's eating his words now. All the pleasing oddities and eccentricities and gadgets of the earlier films have somehow been lost, leaving a routine trail through which the new James Bond strides without noticeable signs of animation. Uh, Donald Zeck of the Daily Mirror damned Lazenby's performance as well, comparing him to Connery. He stated that he looks uncomfortable in the part, like a size 4 foot in a size 10 boot. He did, however, have positive things to say about his co-star Diana Rigg. He added, there is style to Diana Rigg's performance, and I suspect that the last scene which draws something of a performance out of Lazenby owes much to her silken expertise. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune further criticized Lazenby, remarking that he doesn't fill Sean Connery's shoes, Aston Martin, or stretch pants. The new 007 is more boyish and consequently less of a man. He doesn't order food with the same verve and generally lacks the self-satisfied smirk that Connery kept with him and transmitted to his audience. Siskel also liked Riggs' performance, saying that she is well cast as the girl. We lose her for about an hour in the film, only to have her return in a more most implausible location in time. I do kind of agree with him there. She, like the middle half... She just kind of disappears and just shows up, but still, I love Ring no matter what. So, A.H. Uh, Weiler of the New York Times had this to further add about Lazenby. Lazenby, if not a spurious Bond, is merely a casual, pleasant, satisfactory replacement. Okay. Alexander Walker of the London Evening Standard was more positive of Lazenby, stating that the truth is that Lazenby is almost as good a James Bond as the man referred to in his film as The Other Fellow. Lazenby's voice is more suave than sexy sinister, and he could pass for The Other Fellow's twin on the shady side of the casino. Bond is now definitely all set for the 70s. Uh, Judith Christ of New York also complimented, stating that this time around there's less suavity and a no-nonsense muscularity and maleness to the role via the handsome Mr. Lazenby. Feminist film critic Molly Haskell of The Village Voice was also complimentary of the movie and Lazenby, saying, In a world, an industry, and particularly a genre which values the new and improved product above all, it's nothing short of miraculous to see a movie which dares to go backward, a technological artifact which has notably deteriorated into a human being. I speak of the new and obsolete James Bond, played by a man named George Lazenby, 
who seems more comfortable in a wet tuxedo than a dry martini, more at ease as a Donish genealogist than reading or playing Playboy, and who actually dares to think that one woman who is equal is better than a thousand part-time playmates. Now let's take a look at the differences between the novel and the movie. Now, the order in which Bond appears and encounters Tracy is reversed. In the novel, he meets her for the first time in a casino where he pays off her uncoverable debt, and then she tries to drown herself the next day. They flip that around for the film. Uh, the book also starts partway in with Bond saving Tracy from drowning, and then she gets apprehended. Uh, the subsequent chapters then explain how it got to that point. This, the film here has no trope that uh, tries that attempt, thankfully. Uh, Bond successfully fights off two men that apprehend him and Tracy in the beach rather than getting captured right then and there, like in the book. Uh, in the novel, Bond quits MI6 because he thinks that Operation Bedlam is a waste of his time. In the film, he threatens to quit because he's taken off the case and wants to continue, continue pursuing Blofeld as a rogue agent. Uh, now, in the film, Bond finds Blofeld's whereabouts by infiltrating a Swiss banker's office. In the book, he's simply given the information by Draco, so it's uh, much less dramatic. Uh, Bond meets Irma Bunt at the airport, and he arrives in the book. In the film, she meets him at the Swiss train station in the Alps. Uh, Bunt is actually Blofeld's wife in the books. Uh, in the film, she's just he's just her boss and everything. So, uh, Pease Glory is actually located somewhere above Pontresina in the Engadine region of Switzerland in the book. In the film, it's actually directly next to Berg, a summit of the Bernese Alps, overlooking the valley of Lauterbrunnen in the canton of Berg. So, I don't know. So unless you're familiar with Switzerland, that's the only way you'll notice that the difference is there. Now, in the book, Bond is able to get himself out by liberating a plastic strip from a ski shop in Piz Glory in the book. This also factors into how his cover is blown, as the man running the shop has good inventory records and is attentive enough to notice the strip went missing after Hillary Bray left the shop. Uh, there's no shop in the Piz Glory in the movie, and Bond escapes his room using the metal edge of a ruler and an eraser he folds in half. Uh, in the book, Boont is established to be from Germany, but her nationality is not established, although it is implied because the actress that played her is German, so and she does have that German accent. Uh, also in the book, Bond starts tricking Boont into thinking she's a duchess. Uh, in the film, Bond simply tells her that her name comes from a nautical word for uh, the baggy, swollen part of a sail. So just kind of, I guess he was trying to hide a joke in there right there. Uh, in the book, Blofeld is described as having long silver hair and being overweight. Here he's bald and rather muscular, kind of a, a good build. Uh, in the book, Blofeld's Angels of Death are all British. They all came from the UK. Uh, in the film, they're a broader series of nationalities. So, so we, we see an Indian woman, a Chinese woman, uh, Israeli, American, etc. So there's, uh, there's a wide variety of nationalities. So it's a good change on their part. In the book, the Soviet Union is implied to be financing Blofeld's operation due to them excelling in hypnosis, which is a key component of the clinic's treatment. There is no implication of this in the film. Now, Bond comes to the conclusion that Spectre is still in operation by counting three Germans, Slavs, and Corsicans as waiters, also presuming they're Frenchmen working in the kitchen. Um, all the guards appear to be either German or Swiss in the film, and they only, only hurt speaking German natively throughout. So there's, uh, so there's none of that uh, investigating type going on. Uh, in the book, one of Blofeld's guards is thrown down a bobsled run as punishment for sexually harassing a patient. Uh, killing him when he crashes into a shed at the bottom. This this was completely omitted from the film, probably because it was a little too dark. Uh, the patient Bond seduces in order to help with his mission is called Ruby Windsor in the book. In the film, she, her name is changed to Ruby Bartlett. 
Um, additionally, Ruby comes to see Bond in his room in the book. In the film, it's the other way around. Uh, also in the book, Bond is uh, is the only one that seduces Ruby. Um, in the film, he seduces Nancy as well. Uh, in the book, the patients spend the day skiing, and Bond joins them as Sir Hilary Bray. In the, in the film, they, they're playing curling on the ice patio and getting massages and just kind of sunning themselves in the, the nice uh, Swiss uh, warm air, I guess. Now, for the as far as video game ad- adaptations go, there are no standalone video games of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It was featured as one of the levels in 007 Legends. Um, again, George Lazenby's Bond was replaced by Daniel Craig, and certain looks and details of the character were changed, although they did keep the likeness of Diana Rigg and Telly Savalas. The game does focus on two sections, the ski chase where Bond and Chase Tracy outrun Blofeld's men, and the attack on Piz Gloria when Bond arrives to rescue Tracy. So that's the only instance that Honor Majesty's Secret Service reaped a video game uh, adaptation. So. Well, that about wraps it up for uh, this episode of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I do want to apologize for the delay in getting it out. Um, I had several audio issues. Um, files weren't saving to the computer, uh, so I wasn't able to transfer them. Uh uh, work out in the way, so it's uh, you know it's it's been a rough process, but we finally made it. Um, I thank you all for watching. Again, feel free to reach out to me at smithflixpodcast at gmail dot com. Be happy to hear from you. Uh, read your comments, your emails uh, on the next episode. Um, next episode shouldn't there shouldn't be any delays, but there is. But don't worry, James Bond will return in Diamonds Are Forever. Till then, take care. Again, thank you for tuning in to the Smithlicks experience as they continue their journey through James Bond. Please check us out at Amazon Music or Audible through Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts.